0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for the first episode of 2018. Welcome back. I hope you all had a wonderful holiday season, however you celebrate it. It was nice to have a little bit of a break from writing, but you can be sure that I was still researching. I love reading and researching true crime, so I use the time off to work on some new cases and plan more new series for 2018. I hope you will be as excited to get them as I am to bring them to you. So with no further delay, I will introduce our first series. I wanted to start the year on somewhat of a positive or hopeful note, so I decided to bring you stories of true crime survivors. But be forewarned, some of these stories are pretty horrific. When we learn about cases where someone is tragically murdered we only hear the aftermath but when the details of these crimes come straight from the survivors themselves the details can be quite disturbing just know that as brutal as these stories may be in the end there is a tale of courage resilience and survival light at the end of the tunnel the first case i will share with you could have ended in a familiar and tragic way a young girl is abducted and attacked the perpetrator intent on victimizing an innocent teen. But this story ends differently, and I think you'll see that it is only because this young girl was smart, brave, and kept her cool under the most terrifying conditions. This is Chapter 1 of our new series, Survivor Stories, The Abduction of Elizabeth Schoff. On September 6, 2006, 14-year-old Elizabeth Schoff was returning home from school in Lugoff, South Carolina. As the bus dropped her at her stop, 200 feet from her home, her mind was preoccupied. Elizabeth had just begun ninth grade at Lugoff Elgin High School, and life was going pretty good for the pretty brunette. Her parents, Madeline and Don Schoff, were loving parents. Elizabeth was close to her younger brother, Dominic, age 12. She had good friends, and just recently, a new boyfriend. Elizabeth was a bit quiet and shy. Before meeting Nathan, she hadn't even dated before. So, life was exciting and full of promise. She was thinking about school, about Nathan, and about her plans for the rest of the day. Her aunt was coming over to cut her hair, and the family had plans to celebrate her cousin's birthday the next day. Elizabeth always went home right after school. Her younger brother would already be home, and she was in charge each afternoon until her parents returned from work. Elizabeth was very protective of her little brother, and she followed her mother's instructions to the letter, come straight home lock the doors, and do homework until her parents arrived. Lugoff, South Carolina, was a rural town surrounded by dense woods. The Shof home was located 200 yards down a main road. Elizabeth, after exiting her school bus, walked up a dirt path towards her front door. On either side of the path were the woods that surrounded her home. As she walked down the path towards home, she was so close to it, she could hear her dogs barking, sensing her approach. All of a sudden, a man emerged from the woods directly in front of her path. He was tall and thin and looked to be about 30 years old. The stranger stood in front of her with a rifle slung over his shoulder. On his shirt was a patch that read, Kershaw County Sheriff's Department. He was wearing camouflage pants. As he approached, he told her he was with the police. He said she was being arrested and needed to come with him. Elizabeth was in shock for a moment. What did he mean she was being arrested? She'd never done anything that would lead to an arrest. She was confused, and before she could react, the man placed her hands behind her back and handcuffed her. He was saying something about her brother being arrested for marijuana and that she was also in trouble. None of it made sense to Elizabeth. The man led her away, but not towards the road or a police car, but into the woods. As he led her through the thick brush, he started questioning her, asking her if she had a cell phone. Then he asked a very strange question. Was she a virgin? She responded by asking him why did he need to know that. What he said next made her blood run cold. You're a smart girl, he told her. You should have figured it out by now. He also placed a small black box around her neck that hung from a cord. It was a bomb, he told her, and if she tried to run away, he would detonate it and she would be killed. Terrified now, Elizabeth complied as he continued to lead her deeper into the woods. They walked for some time, going in circles, it seemed, to Elizabeth. He'd first lead her in one direction, then switch and backtrack, going the opposite way. She assumed he was trying to disorient her, so she wouldn't know exactly where she was. She was already thinking about how difficult it might be for someone to find her out there. She was wearing sandals, so she slipped them off, leaving them behind. She hoped this might be a clue for someone to find her. Finally, they stopped in what seemed to be the middle of the deep woods, in the middle of nowhere. Elizabeth believed that she would be raped and killed and left there. She was petrified. But instead, the man reached down, brushed away a few leaves, and lifted a trapdoor in the earth. All Elizabeth could see was a dark hole below. Was this to be her grave? Get in, the man ordered. She hesitated, and he became angry. Slowly, she lowered herself down on what appeared to be a homemade ladder. The man followed soon after. As they reached the bottom, she saw where she was. It was a homemade bunker under the earth. The walls were the earth itself. It smelled damp and musty, but she could see that it was well outfitted. There was a handmade bed and shelves that held canned food and other supplies. There was a propane tank hooked to a camping stove. It even had a battery-powered television. And there were other things, another rifle, more guns, a taser, and handcuffs. What was this place, and why was she taken here, she thought, horrified. She couldn't know that the man had been watching her and preparing to bring her to this place for days, if not weeks. It was all part of a terrible plan. The man's name was Vincent Filia, and he was a 36-year-old unemployed construction worker. Julio's father had died when he was just a baby, and his mother remarried when he was still a boy. He would say he grew up in a normal family. He was a Boy Scout and loved to go camping. As a teen, he and some friends began to go on what he called Rambo missions. They would sneak around the woods with knives and in camouflage, trying to recreate some of the excitement from their favorite movie, Rambo. They would steal flags off of buildings, or just try to hide and remain unseen. It was just a game, he would later chuckle. However, as a teen, Filia also began drinking heavily. His alcoholism would prevent him from succeeding at much of anything. But years later, he met a woman named Cindy Hall and found a little stability. He began working here and there in the construction trade. He also began to act as a stepfather to Cindy's three children. Cindy and her children moved into Vincent's home. He became especially fond of her oldest child, 11-year-old Amber. He would say they became close, and she was like a, quote, second housewife. Amber, however, would tell authorities a different story. Philia began to come into her room at night and rape her, she said. She would also say that she believed her mother gave her Benadryl and antihistamine, saying it was for her allergies. Amber believes that she was given the drug to make her sleep through being raped by Philia. Sometimes she would wake up and he would be on top of her, she later reported. Other times she'd wake up in the morning and her clothes would be off. Billia threatened her, saying if she ever told anyone, he'd not only kill her, but also her mother and brother. And there was something else. Philya began digging a large hole behind their home. He told them it was a storm cellar. But sometimes when he was drunk or angry with Amber, he would put her in the hole and lock the door from the outside. She would stay locked under the earth, in the dark, until he decided to let her out. Amber was raped by Philia for months. She told no one, afraid that he would make good on his threats. Finally, her 7th grade teacher noticed a change in Amber and began asking her questions. She finally admitted what was happening at home. The teacher contacted the authorities. Vincent Philia was now a wanted man. A warrant was issued for his arrest, for child molestation. But he was in hiding— Remember the storm cellar he'd built? Well, it wasn't the only hole he'd dug out of the ground. There were several on his property, including one under the floorboards of his house, where he hid when the police came to arrest him. Now he took off into the woods, hiding in various holes he'd dug in the earth. He was angry that Amber had ratted on him. In his mind, she'd betrayed him. He was also angry at the Kershaw County Sheriff's Department. He was insulted that they'd believe a child over him. They'd never come to ask him if the allegations were true, he'd say. However, let's remember that when the authorities did come, they were unable to talk to him since he was hiding in a hole in the dirt. He was a fugitive now, and he believed it was the fault of his stepdaughter and Kershaw County. He made a plan to get back at them both. Filia built another bunker, this one deep in the woods where he could hide out for some time. He equipped it with furniture, a solar shower, propane gas, a fireplace, 12-volt lighting, and a battery-powered television. He planned to kidnap Amber and bring her into the bunker. He'd get revenge on her first. At the same time, he knew the sheriff's department would be looking for him. He would lead them to the bunker in the woods and get his revenge on them as well. He began building bombs and creating booby traps that he placed around the bunker. When the authorities got close enough, he planned to blow them sky-high. He hoped to take out as many Kershaw County law enforcement officers as possible. He then said he planned to kill Amber and then himself. But by the time he had the bunker ready, a monkey wrench was thrown into his careful planning. Authorities at the Children's Welfare Department deemed Amber unsafe at home and sent her to live out of state with other relatives. Now with Amber out of reach, Bilyaw's revenge plot could not be completed. He continued to stew in his anger against Kershaw County, and eventually came up with an alternate plan. He would kidnap someone else. Authorities would look for him, and he could then carry out his goal of mass murder. Bill lived close to the Shove house and knew the woods well. His bunker was within walking distance. He probably watched the school bus, since we know he was a pedophile that preyed on young girls. Was Elizabeth singled out and stalked? Perhaps. Or maybe she was just the unlucky girl who happened to be walking alone that day. As she got off the bus and began walking home, a couple of her classmates were met by another friend in a car. They asked Elizabeth if she wanted to go for a ride. They said they could drive her home later, but she declined. Elizabeth was a responsible girl who was needed at home to watch her younger brother. So she walked up the road alone that day, instead of leaving in the car with the others. By the time they drove back past the road to Elizabeth's house a few minutes later, she was gone. On the day of Elizabeth's kidnapping, Vincent Fillia dressed in camouflage pants and a shirt that he'd sewn a crudely handmade Kershaw County Sheriff's Department badge to. It was good enough to fool a child, he must have thought. He armed himself with a rifle, handcuffs, and a homemade bomb, the one he'd strapped around Elizabeth's neck as he led her to the bunker. By the time his victim realized the danger she was in, it was too late. Now she was locked with him in the underground bunker. Looking around, she could see that there were enough provisions for someone to be kept there for quite some time. She was terrified to think he might be planning to hold her there indefinitely, and equally terrified that he might kill her right away. As soon as Elizabeth was safely hidden in the bunker, Vilja made his immediate intentions clear. He forced the terrified girl to take off her clothes and he raped her. She cried and pleaded, but the more she fought him, the more violent he became. Afterwards, he placed a chain around her neck that was secured to a beam in the ceiling. She was confined to the bed and could barely move. The chain was wrapped so tightly around her neck. Meanwhile, Madeline Schoaf called home soon after Elizabeth was expected to arrive. She did this every day to make sure her children were home safe and that all was well. Her son answered the phone. He told his mother that Elizabeth wasn't home yet. Feeling the first twinge of anxiety, she asked him to look outside "'and see if his sister might be walking up the road. "'No, he didn't see her anywhere,' he answered. "'At first, Madeline thought that maybe the bus was just late, "'or Elizabeth had to stay after school for some reason. "'When she called back at 4.30, and she still hadn't arrived, "'Madeline knew something was wrong. "'It was unlike her daughter to be late without an explanation. "'She called her husband, and they both rushed home. "'Not finding her nearby,' and discovering that the bus had dropped its riders off on time, they called the police to report their daughter missing. At first, the police didn't take it very seriously. At least a hundred times a year, a parent would call in to report a child missing from home, the sheriff would later say. And about 95% of the time, it was a simple misunderstanding, or a child who'd gone off to a friend's house without telling anyone. Some were runaways, and this is what the police told the Shofs. Maybe she'd run away. If so, she'd probably come back home within a couple of days. Madeline Shove told them, in no uncertain terms, that her daughter would never have run away. That was 100% unlike her. Her parents had checked her room. Nothing was missing. No clothes, not her laptop, and even the few dollars she got every week as lunch money was still sitting on her dresser. No, it was not possible that Elizabeth had run off on her own. Even so, the Sheriff's Department put out the bulletin for the missing 14-year-old as a possible runaway. The search began that night. Tracking dogs were brought in to search the area around her house, but they could not pick up her scent. As the minutes ticked by, Elizabeth's family grew more frantic. This was every parent's worst nightmare. Night was falling, and they had no idea where Elizabeth might be, and they had no clue as to who could have taken her. In her parents' mind, she would not have left willingly so someone must have her very early the next morning more tracking dogs were sent out and a helicopter flew over the miles of dense forest surrounding the town news of elizabeth's disappearance was broadcast on local television still there was no sign of the girl as the third day dawned more searches were called in the woods were so dense that it was a difficult area to search some areas were searched on all-terrain vehicles. Areas that could not be accessed by these vehicles were searched on horseback. And areas that could not be accessed on horseback were searched on foot. Still, the searchers came up empty. On day four, thousands of flyers with Elizabeth's picture and description were widely distributed. No Amber Alert was issued, a move some would criticize. But one criteria for an Amber Alert is a suspect vehicle description. In this case, there was no known vehicle. The search continued, and no stone was left unturned, but there were hundreds of acres of woods, no identified suspect, and no witnesses at all as to what happened to Elizabeth. Sheriff Steve McCaskill knew that with each passing hour, and now it had been days, the odds of finding her alive grew slim. Of course, he would never share this with Elizabeth's parents. Anyway, Madeline Schoff refused to believe that her daughter was gone forever. She continued to pray and believed that she would be found and come home safe. Back in the bunker, Elizabeth knew that she had to keep her wits about her if she ever wanted to go home again. The first thing she did was stop crying and pleading with her captor. She found that when she submitted to being raped, a daily occurrence— He stopped being so violent with her, and things went easier. So she picked a place in the bunker and stared at that object willing herself to go numb and leave her body while the vile act was taking place. On the second day in the bunker, searchers could be heard in the area. They were so close that Elizabeth could see their shadows above the bunker through the crack in the trap door as they walked over it. She began to cry out for help, but Philia quickly shut her up threatening to kill her if she didn't keep quiet. Later, all was silent again as searchers left the area. Elizabeth's heart sank. That night, Philia opened up some cans of food, and they both ate while watching the newscast on the battery-operated television. Elizabeth's disappearance and the search for her was featured. She froze when she saw her mother on television, crying and begging for her daughter to be returned. Filia seemed to enjoy seeing the drama and pain he created. He sneered at Elizabeth and said, They'll never find you. She dissolved into tears and felt even more hopeless. It became a daily occurrence for Phillia to turn on the television set during the news hour and have her watch the efforts that were being taken to find her. He enjoyed seeing her in pain, Elizabeth realized. As much as she hated her captor, she realized that her only chance to survive long enough to be rescued would be not to anger him. She began to pretend like she accepted her situation and even that she didn't mind being kept there with him. She began asking him questions about himself and his interests. He seemed pleased and even began being nicer to her. By day four, Elizabeth had made him comfortable enough with her that he now removed the chain from around her neck. She was free to move around the bunker. Now, Elizabeth began to try and find a way to save herself. Every evening, Vilja would make a trip out of the bunker to fetch water from a nearby creek. With Elizabeth unchained, he decided that she could make the trip with him. Equipped with night-vision goggles to see if anyone might be hiding in the woods, they walked a few hundred yards to the spring. Elizabeth pulled out a few strands of her hair while on the way, leaving them draped over tree branches as a possible clue for the searchers. Back in the bunker, Philia began talking to Elizabeth, telling her about his problems and his anger against Kershaw County authorities. They had falsely accused him of molesting his stepdaughter, he claimed. She pretended to commiserate with him, and before long, he began behaving as if they were in a relationship. He told her he cared about her, and even that he loved her, and he called her baby. She thought that by playing along, he might eventually let her out of the bunker so she told him she loved him too. Billia now left her unchained at night, even while he slept, and she used this time to try to find a way to escape. She crawled quietly up the ladder to the trap door, but couldn't budge it. Besides, he'd shown her some of the tripwires and booby traps he had set to explode in the woods around the bunker. She couldn't be sure that if she did leave the bunker, she wouldn't gain her freedom only to be killed by the planted bombs. She noticed that he left his gun lying on the table next to the bed, but it was in a Velcro case, and it took her minutes of slowly opening the Velcro, holding her breath the whole time that he might hear the noise, before she could retrieve the gun. He was still asleep, and Elizabeth held the gun pointed to her captor's head. She had never fired a gun, or even held one before, but she knew that it was very likely his life or her own at stake, and that this might be her only chance so she pulled back the trigger and fired it straight at his head. It clicked, and the gun jammed. Miraculously, he didn't wake from the sound. Completely despondent now, she carefully put the gun back in its case so he wouldn't discover what she had tried to do. Hilya had a cell phone, and she knew he often texted his girlfriend Cindy Hall on it. Hall was still living in the house and knew that he was on the run from the law. She had covered for him while he hid under the floor in their home or in the storm cellar behind the house when the cops had come looking to arrest him for raping her daughter. It was believed that during the time he held Elizabeth captive, Cindy Hall was in touch with him and perhaps even helping him. Whether she knew the location of the bunker is unknown, although she would later deny any knowledge of the kidnapping. Now Elizabeth told Philia she was bored, and would it be okay if she played a game on his cell phone? He agreed. In between games, she would occasionally try to send a text to her parents. However, the text she sent always bounced back as failed to send, as there was no phone signal in the bunker. She continued to try, but it continued to read failed. One night, she took the phone and silently climbed the ladder to the top of the bunker by the door to try again while Philia slept. The text still did not go through. She decided to give up on that plan. It's probable that Philia knew there was no signal in the bunker, so he did not worry about Elizabeth's use of the phone. Six days went by, and then a full week, and still there were no clues where Elizabeth might be. A vigil was scheduled for the evening of September 13th at the state capitol in Columbia. Madeline Schoaf was leaving her house to attend just before 4 p.m. when she grabbed her keys and her phone on the way out of the door. As she glanced at her phone, she saw a text from an unknown number. It read, Hey, Mom, it's Lizzie. I'm in a hole in the ground near Charm Hill. It's near that dirt road where those big trucks go. Get the police, though, because he has bombs hidden. Madeline froze. She knew it was from her daughter. No one but Elizabeth used the nickname Lizzie. She rushed to inform the sheriff that she'd received a text from Elizabeth. She was ecstatic. They were going to find her. Apparently, one of the texts Elizabeth had sent had somehow made it through. Perhaps the phone continued to try and send the message and was finally able to do so when Philia went above ground. Or perhaps it was simply a miracle. Prayers answered. Searchers were sent out that evening to search the dense woods all around the area described in the text. It said she was in a hold in the ground, which they took to mean a hole in the ground. That would make it much more difficult, but they were determined to find her. They used heat-seeking equipment to scan the woods from the air as well. After a day of searching, they found nothing. The sheriff thought at first that the text might have come from someone playing a cruel joke and sending them on a wild goose chase. But when they finally tracked down the cell phone number and then determined that the cell towers near the area of Charm Hill Road had pinged from that number, they knew that this was a viable lead. They also knew once they tracked down the owner of the cell phone number that Elizabeth was in grave danger. Their suspect was Vincent Filia and he was wanted for the rape of a 12-year-old girl. They served a search warrant on his home. Of course he was not there and his girlfriend Cindy Hall insisted that she had not seen or heard from him. As they searched the house and grounds they found a number of underground bunkers all of them empty. They also found a cache of weapons, Drugs and pornographic materials among Philia's possessions. Elizabeth's fate looked more and more dire. They knew there was no time to lose. Elizabeth, of course, didn't know that her text message had gone through, nor did she know that Philia was identified as her suspected kidnapper, at least not until day nine. They once again heard helicopters circling overhead. The news reports announced that the search for Elizabeth was continuing, but Philia didn't seem too concerned. But on the evening of the ninth day, all that changed. Philia was watching the nightly news as usual when his picture flashed on the screen. The report announced that he was the primary suspect in the kidnapping of Elizabeth Schof, and had also been charged with child molestation. The next words almost sealed Elizabeth's fate. The news went on to say that a text message had been received from Elizabeth to her mother, saying that she was being held underground. Bilya became enraged and screamed at her for betraying him, threatening to kill her. She was terrified and believed that he would now surely murder her. Why was this reported? Didn't the authorities realize that if she was still alive and her captor discovered she had sent the text message, he might kill her? The sheriff would later say that they felt they had to take the risk, They wanted their suspect to know they had identified him and believed it might cause him to run, leaving Elizabeth behind to be rescued. It's Monday morning quarterbacking, of course, but most people, including Elizabeth's parents, were horrified this information was released. The Schofs had not even been informed beforehand. They learned about it from the newscast as well. If they wanted to put pressure on Philia by announcing he was a suspect, Couldn't they have said that he was sought as a suspected child molester who lived in the area where Elizabeth was last seen? Or suggest that a witness had identified him as being in the area on that day? Yes, they took the risk, and it was a very big risk indeed. In the bunker, Filio was panicking. To her surprise, although he was angry and had threatened her life, he then asked her what he should do. Elizabeth, keeping her wits about her once again, told him that he should run now before they found him. You should pack up and leave tonight, she told him. If he didn't go, she said she was afraid they would find him and he would be arrested, or worse, killed by the police. Leave tonight, she told him. Tomorrow morning I'll leave and meet you. Then we'll run away together. To her astonishment, he agreed. Filia packed up and left in the dead of the night. Although Elizabeth wanted to escape the bunker immediately after he was gone, she was still afraid he might be waiting for her, testing her to see if she had lied to him. He could be hiding somewhere in the woods, and if he saw her leave, he might kill her. So she waited for hours, until the morning began to dawn. He did not return. The next day, ten days after she'd been abducted, Elizabeth left the bunker. Searchers were already combing the woods for her once again. They began a line search where several searchers are positioned just feet away from each other in a straight line to meticulously cover every square foot of ground. They knew they were looking for an underground hiding place and that it would be like finding a needle in a haystack. Only 30 minutes into the search, they heard a voice calling out for help. They began running as fast as they could towards the voice in the distance. They just reached the top of a rise in the woods. When they looked down to see Elizabeth standing by an open hatched door in the forest floor. Running towards her, the sheriff's deputy couldn't hold back tears. As he reached her, he pulled her to him in a hug. You're safe now, he told her. I've been looking everywhere for you. I know, Elizabeth answered, crying but extremely happy now. I heard you. Vincent Filia walked for miles through the woods trying to find a way to escape what he knew would be a widespread dragnet. He emerged and headed into town. His goal was to steal a car to try and get as far away from Kershaw County as possible. But just like he'd made a mistake when he targeted Elizabeth as a victim, the 14-year-old had outsmarted the pedophile and masterminded her own rescue. He now picked the wrong person to carjack. He approached a young mother, Jennifer Lynn, who'd taken her young son with her on a quick shopping trip and demanded she give him her car. Jennifer immediately recognized Philia from news reports. She began yelling at him for trying to carjack her in front of her young son. Philia became apologetic, saying, I'm sorry, before walking away quickly down the road. Jennifer called the police and reported her encounter with the wanted fugitive. Within a few hours, Philia was captured. He was five miles from his home, carrying a taser, pellet gun, and a knife. The bunker where he'd kept Elizabeth in prison for ten days was located only a half a mile from her front door, a mere ten-minute walk. (music) Madeline and Don Schoaf were home early that morning when a Kershaw County Sheriff's vehicle pulled up in front of their home. The sheriff rang the bell, and Madeline could tell that he had tears in his eyes and... Could it be a smile? We found her, he announced, and she's okay. Madeline couldn't get to the hospital fast enough to see her little girl. She wouldn't totally believe it was true until she saw her and held her in her arms. The family was reunited and everyone dissolved into tears. It was a miracle. Here before them was Elizabeth, missing for ten days and now found. She was weak, but she was alive and in remarkably good spirits. The police, of course, wanted to question her, but her doctor and parents gave her permission to wait if she wanted to. They didn't know how much she could handle right away, and they wanted her to feel safe and have time to heal. Elizabeth, however, didn't want to wait. She wanted to talk. She had no hesitance about letting them know everything she could about Vincent Filia, the monster who had kidnapped, imprisoned, and repeatedly raped her. She only had one request— She didn't want to go home until the monster was in custody. He threatened to kill her and her family if she tried to escape, and he knew where she lived. Elizabeth and her family took no chances. She left the hospital and went to her grandparents' house, where she heard the good news about his arrest later that evening. A few days later, Philia was in court for a bond hearing. Elizabeth wanted to be present, she needed to see him shackled and in handcuffs for her own peace of mind. It took only a few minutes for Philia to be brought in front of the judge before he was denied bail. Elizabeth was satisfied that she could now go home and try and resume her normal life. Philia didn't do himself any favors while in jail. Stupidly, he decided that he should write a book about his exploits. He handwrote a 120-page manuscript detailing his life and crimes. His story about Amber's accusations of child molestation read like a textbook case of a typical pedophile mindset. His 11-year-old stepdaughter, he claimed, came on to him. He ran from the law because, he explained, no one would believe his side over a little girl. He continually placed himself in the role of the victim. He admitted that he'd planned to kidnap Amber and probably kill her, but says he never planned to blow anybody up, or take revenge on the sheriff's department. He made the excuse that since he had been accused of being a child molester, he might as well be one. As for Elizabeth, he wrote that she enjoyed her time hiding with him. She was a willing participant, he claimed. As a matter of fact, he and Elizabeth were going to run away together, and they also planned to write a book together. But she'd betrayed him, just like Amber had. So he decided to write his book alone and tell his side of the story. His side of the story was very helpful to the prosecutors. They confiscated his manuscript, planning to introduce it into evidence at his trial. Perhaps because of this, or maybe because he knew both Amber and Elizabeth both planned to testify in court against him, he decided to plead guilty and entered his plea before the trial was set to begin. Before he was sentenced, portions of the manuscript were read out loud in court for the judge to hear. In it, he confessed to both kidnapping and rape. As well, Amber read her statement in court about being molested by Philia for almost a year when she was between the ages of 11 and 12. Elizabeth had also prepared a statement for the judge. However, she became too emotional to read it herself, instead asking the prosecutor to read it for her. Her story about that terrible day she was confronted by Philia had a bomb placed around her neck and was led to a bunker underground in the woods where she was repeatedly raped and threatened with death made the court's blood run cold. It also caused all those who heard it marvel at how a 14-year-old child could have survived such a terrible ordeal. Her courage and ability to keep a cool head under such horrific circumstances was beyond what most adults felt that they could have endured. Sheriff McCaskill would say that they didn't rescue Elizabeth, she rescued herself. Everything she did in that bunker, from keeping calm to pretending to relate to her captor, to trying everything she could think of to be found, leaving behind clues, and tricking Filia into letting her use his cell phone, probably saved her life. After the judge heard the whole story of what Elizabeth had survived, he handed down his sentence. For kidnapping and ten counts of criminal sexual assault, one for each day Elizabeth was held captive, Vincent Filia was sentenced to the maximum penalty for each count. It added up to a total of 421 years in prison, his sentence was set to run consecutively and with no possibility for parole. He was incarcerated in the Maximum Security Unit at Kirkland Correctional Institution. His girlfriend, Cindy Hall, was charged with aiding and abetting Elizabeth's abduction. It was discovered that she had brought food and supplies to a drop spot near her house, where Philia could later retrieve them while Elizabeth was being held in the bunker. After a few weeks, Elizabeth returned to school. She still, of course, suffered from the after-effects of her ordeal. She was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and received ongoing therapy to help her with her healing process. The following year, Elizabeth's story was featured on a two-hour Dateline special titled Into the Woods. Elizabeth, a soft-spoken young lady, talks very candidly about her abduction and everything she endured. She is proud of herself for being able to mastermind her own rescue and surviving her ordeal. Her mother is also proud of her. A 14-year-old little girl outsmarted someone who had outsmarted the police, she says. In the years since her rescue, Elizabeth has completed high school, went on to college, and became a dental hygienist working in Columbia, Interest in her story was revived in 2013 when three girls were found in Cleveland, Ohio, who'd been kidnapped and held captive for over a decade. I detailed that case way back in episode number three. At that time, Elizabeth had this to say, Always keep faith. Faith will get you through anything. When I was held captive, keeping faith and knowing and hoping to see my family again kept me strong. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. To interact with me or other listeners, you can follow the show on Twitter at Upon a Crime or on Facebook and Instagram at Once Upon a Crime Pod. We now have new levels and listener perks on Patreon. You can get access to exclusive content and other perks for as little as $1.50 per month. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime. Thanks to everyone for listening and making Once Upon a Crime a top-rated show. You guys rock. Until next time, be good to one another.